This is Listen Again with the Bridge, your opportunity to hear Sunday's message. We hope you enjoy listening, and it all starts right now. If you have your Bibles today, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. And I'm going to ask my buddy Ben to come to the stage. I've asked him to read our scripture text this morning as we get started in the sermon. So. Check. Cool. So this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And then he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Thanks, Ben. I'm always amazed at how Jesus was able to handle any situation so simply. He never got frazzled. He never backed down. He never was nervous. He would simply stay calm and almost always respond to a question with either a question or a story. And this story here is no different. In this instance, Jesus is trying to teach, and sure enough, this lawyer wants to put him to the test. But in the most difficult times, Jesus would always have the simplest solution. I read an article by Albert Einstein, and he talked about the five ascending levels of intelligence. I like to refer to Albert Einstein because a lot of people tell me that he and I are a lot alike in our IQ and the way we think. So it's as if you're hearing from Albert Einstein today, minus the hair. So um, <laughs> I, uh, I really thought this, uh, this article was interesting. These five ascending levels of intelligence. He said, there's people who are smart, there's people who are intelligent, there's people who are brilliant, there's people who are genius. What could you do beyond genius? His fifth level of intelligence, he said they were simple. Simple. He was saying the most intelligent people were the ones who could take the most difficult situations and make them simple. Find a simple solution. And that is the definition of Jesus. This morning, as we continue in our series entitled Relationships, and we have this boat up here to keep in mind that in our lives, God places us in all kinds of relationships. 
Just a couple of weeks ago, Courtney and I stood up here together and talked about those different relationships, whether it be a marriage, a friendship, a partnership, a roommate, whatever it is, God places all kinds of people in our life that we have to step into the ship with. And how do we navigate those ships? By allowing God to be the captain. Allowing him to steer the ship. If we start trying to take control, that's when we get off course every time. We talked about taking our desires and bumping them into expectations. And when we do that, when we turn our desires into expectations in that relationship, those people will let us down. And when they do, we begin to get, put them in a negative balance. And how we have to begin every single day starting them at zero in our relationships. Now last week, we continued this series by talking about sexual purity in our relationships. And it makes me feel good that you're here today because you didn't hear last week's sermon and just run away as far as you could. Thank you for coming back. But it's important that we understand that God desires for us to keep the marriage bed pure. Whether we're single, married, young, old, doesn't matter. In every relationship, we are to remain pure. So today, obviously, we're talking about the Good Samaritan. Just who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Who do I have to step into a relationship with? Is there anyone I can exclude? Is it determined by their theology? Is it determined by their social status in the community? Is it determined by what they wear? The truth is, no, love has no loophole. Even the fact that this story is written by Luke is a testament to seeing everyone as your neighbor. See, Luke was a Gentile. He was the only non-Jewish author of any book in the Bible. He had a totally different perspective than, say, Matthew, Mark, or John. And he took it upon himself to do research and give a detailed account of Jesus' life. Matthew referred to Jesus as the king of the Jews. However, when you read Luke, when he's telling the Christmas story... He says, angels were singing peace on earth and goodwill toward men, meaning all men. He had a worldwide vision and Jesus was savior of the world. It didn't matter if you were rich, poor, Jew or Gentile. So how do we get to this text where Jesus is telling us this parable? Well, at this time, this was an unspoken thing, but people perceived this kind of a hierarchy. There was God. There were the Pharisees and the scribes, and then there was everybody else. All the common people looked up to the Pharisees and scribes, and Jesus comes on the scene early in his ministry, and he begins to kind of pick a fight with these Pharisees and scribes because he calls them hypocrites. He says they know the law, they know what they're supposed to do, but they're not doing it. He even says their teaching is incomplete. So he posed a tremendous threat to the power and the authority of these Scribes and Pharisees. And not only was Jesus gaining notoriety and credibility with the stories that he told and with the way he taught, but also through the miracles that he performed. Again, he posed a threat to these men. They even began to say that he must come from Satan in order to do these miracles that he does. In Matthew 12, chapter 12, verse 24, it says, When the Pharisees heard this, they said, 
It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. They're trying to do everything they can to knock Jesus down. And here we are in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, the story of the Good Samaritan. And the Bible tells us this lawyer is going to put him to the test. This is not a lawyer in what we would think of a lawyer. This was not someone who would defend you in court. This was someone who studied the Old Testament law and knew it well. And Jesus rolls in from Galilee claiming to be the Son of God. It's only natural that this man would want to test him and make sure he does know what he's talking about. He is who he says he is. So therefore he breaks out, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this is when Jesus kicks in the brilliance. He kicks in the most simple answer to this guy's question by offering up another question. Why does he do this? Well, for one, he's retaining his authority by putting it back on the man. But also, a good teacher would do this to help the student come to the conclusion for themselves. Jesus knew this guy knew the answer. So Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. This was easy for this man to answer because this was a text from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And any good, God-fearing, faithful Jew quoted this twice a day in their life. So this was a pretty easy answer for this lawyer to give. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now what does that mean? Does that mean if he didn't do it, he was going to die? What does Jesus mean by that? Actually, Jesus is quoting Leviticus 18.5. It says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. And then he says, I am the Lord. So Jesus was referring to Leviticus 18.5. But he was not saying that this righteousness is the result of works. He was saying that love for God and obedience to God will be natural result of placing your faith in God. Remember the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The truth is, you can't do anything. Think about it. We can't do anything to earn it. And Jesus is showing this guy that. Yeah, if you're perfect at loving God and loving your neighbor, we, we like to talk about there's only one way to heaven, and that's true. It's through accepting Jesus into our heart. There actually is another way, but none of us can pull it off. If we were to live a perfect life, if we were to actually love the Lord our God with all our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, and we were perfect at that, then we could make our way to heaven. Truth is, it's impossible because none of us are perfect. That's why Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is basically saying, if you just live by the law, if that's your way to earn your way to heaven, the first time someone cuts you off on the road and makes you angry, the first time they take the last donut in front of you at high V or whatever it is that makes you angry, you're forfeiting your eternal life if you're living by works. 
The law was never intended to bring salvation. It was tended, intended to be a guide that helps us live like Jesus. So what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God was maybe the wrong question to be asking. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this, even though we've heard grace how many times. Everything in our life that we get here on earth, we earn and it's very hard for us to think that somewhere out there we couldn't just do just enough to where finally God goes, you've done enough, you've earned it. You've lived for me long enough, you've, you've done your best 35 years now, 40 years now, 50 years. Finally, you're to the point where you've just earned your way in. If only it were that easy. It's hard for us to think about because if we want a position at work, you know what we have to do? We have to earn it. We have to go in early. We have to work late. We have to get involved and invested in that job. Show that we care in order to earn that position. You want a new car? Then you're going to have to work extra time. You're going to have to get a separate job. Whatever you have to do to earn enough money to buy that vehicle. Anything that we want in life, we have to earn. You want to go on vacation? You have to work enough days to earn the right to take some time off. Unless you can live the perfect life, loving God and loving your neighbor, you can't inherit the kingdom of God through works. It's because of the grace of God that you are invited into the kingdom. Now this lawyer's smart. He knew the right answer. But he also knows that Jesus has kind of thrown the light back on him. So he thinks, hey, I'll just switch it back. I can do this. I'll test him again. Now, this lawyer, a Jew, I'm pretty sure he would have defined his neighbor as another law-abiding Jew. Think about it. I can do that. I can love my other Jewish friends. I can love God. So desiring to just justify himself, he said to Jesus, just who is my neighbor? Desiring to throw it back on him. Who exactly do I have to love is really what he's asking. And how many times in our lives do we do this? Maybe you don't ask the question, just who is my neighbor? You can say, Chad, don't throw me in on that category with you. Help me make me out to be that person. How many times have we been walking through Hy-Vee or Walmart or wherever it is you like to shop, and you see someone you know, and you think, maybe if I just keep getting around the corner, they won't see me, and I won't have to stop and talk because I'm in a hurry. How many times have we done that? Do I really have to help at this college lunch? I mean, those students have never fed me. Just who is my neighbor? How many times do we ask ourselves, yeah, my neighbor right across the street, sure. I could go over there and shovel her driveway, but I don't really even know her. Just who is my neighbor? How many times have we been like this lawyer? I'm going to read something to you that sounds very pessimistic. But I promise you, I'll bring it back around. Wherever there is love, there will always be someone to try to take advantage of that love. Wherever there's someone willing to help and reach out to others, there will always be someone trying to profit at the expense of another person. Whenever we open ourselves to try and help the loving and the hurting, or love the hurting and the broken, someone's going to be there to hurt us back. You can't love without being hurt. Just ask Jesus. 
But does that mean we stop loving? The command did not say, love until you get hurt, then you get an out. Once you're hurt, once somebody took it that far and took advantage of you, you're done. You can just be done and you don't have to love anybody else. Just sit back and enjoy life until Jesus comes. That's not what it says. The command is that we love our neighbor. So the only thing we can do to try to give us an out is to say, who is my neighbor? Just who do I have to love? How many times do I have to love them? Jesus didn't even answer the lawyer. He didn't give him a definition of love. He didn't give him a definition of who is my neighbor. He simply responded with a story. Imagine that you came up to me, you're new to town, and you're like, hey, Chad, I need something from Walmart. Can you tell me where it's at? And I just say, you know, there was a man walking with a dog one time. Is that not an odd response? But here this man has asked, just who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now to capture the brilliance in Jesus' story, I want to give you a few details to help you understand that this really is something his listeners could have envisioned in their mind. There's a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 17 miles long. And it's called the Way of Blood because it's a dangerous road with lots of caves and boulders along that road. And thieves and robbers would hide in the caves or behind the boulders. And when people were walking down that road, they would jump out and they would rob them as they went along. From Jerusalem to Jericho is down. Jerusalem's up on a hill and you walk down to Jericho. Everything Jesus is telling is something they can envision in their mind. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, meaning the man that was beaten, naked, robbed, and left for dead. Now everyone listening would have imagined this priest as a Jewish priest coming from Jericho, excuse me, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Making his way down there. They envision Jesus is telling them about the hero. Here comes the Jewish priest who's going to step in and save the day. That's not how the story goes. Jesus says he walked on the other side of the road and kept going. Now if we were to bring this to today, let's say Jesus was here telling the story today. And he was to say, your pastor, the most loving, caring perfect guy I know, Pastor Chad, standing before you today, went to high V and there laid a person on the ground who'd been robbed and beaten and left half naked and he walked right by him and everybody would go, mind blown. I just can't even imagine Chad doing that, right? Not one amen. My mom is here. She couldn't even say amen to that. Come on. We wouldn't even think of that, would we? What's it say next? Verse 32, a Levite who came to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side. Now, let's continue the story. A Levite would have been still in the priestly order, considered almost like an assistant to the priest. So here's a Levite, and for today's sake, we'll say Pastor Mark. How many of you know Pastor Mark? He helps with small groups. He does helps with children. He helps lead worship. If you know Pastor Mark at all, you know he's like the nicest dude in the world. I'm a pretty competitive guy. 
I like to win at just about everything. And every single day, I can come in here with the goal of out-nicing Mark. I can just say, okay, I'm going to be super nice, and I'm going to be nicer than Mark. And that dude is 20 times nicer every single day. And if you know Mark, you know what I'm talking about. Even Mark sees this person lying in the parking lot and walked around and kept on going. There's no way that Mark would ever do that. He gets an amen. Seriously? Come on. But a Samaritan. Everybody say Samaritan. Samaritan. It doesn't sound so bad to us. But if you were sitting there that day, a Samaritan, the ones they looked down upon, the unclean, they called them half-breeds. They had zero respect for them. But a Samaritan came walking along the road. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. That word compassion is a huge word in this story. See, the lawyer knew the right answer. Jesus probably could have quizzed him on anything. He probably could have answered it if it had to do with the Old Testament law. But he was lacking in, compa in compassion. He was lacking in love. How many of us come in here every week? We know the routine. We can even take communion. We know where to go to get it. We may even know a few words to the songs on the screen. We can quote a few scriptures. I can tell you where John 3, 16 is at. But where's the compassion? Where's the love? Who, just who is my neighbor? Verse 34, he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the rocks. This lawyer, the guy with all the answers, couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He despised him that much that he just simply answered with the one who showed mercy. He lacked in compassion. Jesus, being the brilliant man that he was, flipped it right back on him again and says, go and do likewise. See, the point of this entire story was to encourage this lawyer to take all that knowledge, everything that he knew was correct, and begin to apply it into his own life. How many of us have been that lawyer? We knew the right answer. We knew what we were supposed to do in that moment. But we began to ask, well, just who is my neighbor? Do I really have to take that extra step? Go and do sounds really good in a sermon. But when it requires my time on Friday night, when it requires me getting up early Sunday morning or Saturday morning to do something when I could be sleeping in after working hard all week, when it involves the money that I've been saving to buy my new set of golf clubs, 
or my new boat. When it becomes intrusive into my own life, go and do doesn't sound so good. That's when we begin to ask, just who is my neighbor? Are you willing to let someone, not just your family, not just your friends, not just those you see eye to eye with, into your relationship? You know the great motivator in this story? The best way to be inspired by this story is to understand that you and I, every single one of this, us in this room, have been the man, beaten, stripped, and left for dead. Maybe not literally, but how many of us have been hopeless, lost, broken, and hurting, and then Jesus came? That good Samaritan. When we begin to think of it like that, when we begin to understand that Jesus was that good Samaritan to every single one of us. He didn't just come to give us life. The Bible says he came to give us life to the full. That's our inspiration to love our neighbor. There's no loophole in that love. There's no way to excuse yourself out of it. This is not a sermon that requires just a response this morning. This is a sermon that requires a response every single day that you live, everywhere you go, that you would love your Republican neighbor, your Democrat neighbor, your rich, your poor neighbor, your annoying, grouchy neighbor, the neighbor who makes terrible life decisions over and over and over again, the neighbor who has it all together and has everything you could want. That neighbor you are to love. We are commanded to love. To let people into our lives. And as we begin that relationship with them. As we find out who they are. And we know them. And truly get to know them. We are still to love them. Just who is my neighbor? It's a scary thought today. To be willing to love. Even when. We could get hurt. Will you bow your heads with me? As I was just speaking, I feel as though that God is telling me, there's some of you in here that have, you've been hurt so bad, you can't even imagine putting yourself out there to love someone else. Pray that you would find healing this morning. Pray that that broken heart that someone caused, someone who was unfair to you, someone that maybe even attacked you, allow God to mend that broken heart this morning so that you can know what it is to love again. You don't have to excuse yourself Every single time you feel led to help someone. But you can have compassion. The heart that Jesus had. Even for this lawyer. You ever think about that? Jesus loved this lawyer enough. To teach him 
allowing him to answer the questions simply through a story telling him to go and do likewise. Father, I pray that you would speak to each one of us today. Once again, it's not just this morning. If we just said a prayer this morning and walked out and forgot this, all is lost. But as we leave this place today, that we would go and do likewise. Every person that we come in contact with, every person we drive by and you tell us to stop and help, you tell us to stop and pray, you tell us to stop and lend a kind word, to lend a warm touch, may we go and do likewise. Jesus, thank you for those stories. The simplest things you could do that encourage us, that lead us in the direction we need to go. May we not just know the answers today. I think it's great that we study your word, that we know what the Bible says. But Lord, we have to apply it. We have to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. Pray that you help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to close a little differently today. A lot of times we leave worshiping God, singing and praising God. I want to end with a story. I think it's a great story to close this sermon out. It's about a man by the name of Kent Nurburn. He was a cab driver. And his story is called The Cab Ride I Will Never Forget. There's a time in my life 20 years ago when I was driving a cab for a living. It was a cowboy's life, a gambler's life, a life for someone who wanted no boss, constant movement, and the thrill of the dice roll every time a new passenger got in the cab. What I didn't count on when I took this job was that it would also be a ministry. Because I drove the night shift, my cab became a rolling confessional. I was responding to a call from a brick fourplex in a quiet part of town when I arrived at the address, the building was dark except for one single light on the ground floor. Under these circumstances, many cab drivers would just honk once or twice, wait for a moment, and then drive away. Too many bad possibilities awaiting a driver who went up to a darkened building at 2.30 in the morning. But I had seen too many people trapped in the life of poverty who depended on a cab, drive, cab ride as their only means of transportation. Unless a situation had real smell of danger, I would always go to the door. It might, I reasoned, be someone who needs my assistance. Would I not want a driver to do the same for me? So I walked to the door and I knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail elderly voice. I could hear the sound of dragging something dragging across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened and a small woman in her 80s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress, a pillbox hat, a veil pinned on it, like you might see in a costume shop, a Goodwill store, or a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The sound had been her dragging it across the floor. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it in years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks 
or utensils in the, on the counters. In the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. So I took the suitcase to the cab, returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and walked slowly toward the cab. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother to be treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address and asked, could you drive through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered, indicating it was going to cost her more money. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to a hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. She said, I don't have any family left, and the doctor says I don't have long to live. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like for me to take? I asked. For the next two hours, I drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they first were married. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she'd gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she would have me slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness saying nothing. Finally, at first light, she said, I'm tired, we can go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building, it was like a convalescent home. Two orderlies came out to the cab. As soon as we pulled up, I opened the trunk, took the small suitcase up to the door. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent over and gave her a hug. She held me so tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand once and then walked out into the dim morning light. Behind me, I could hear the door shut. It was the sound of a closing of a life. I did not pick up any other passengers on my shift. I drove aim aimlessly around, lost in thought for the remainder of the day. What if the woman had gotten an angry driver, one who was impatient or at the end of her shift? What if I had refused to take the run, honked once and driven away? What if I had been in a foul mood and refused to engage the woman in conversation? How many other moments like that had I missed or failed to grasp? This was the point of his story in the last paragraph. He said, we are so conditioned to think that our lives revolve around great moments. But great moments often catch us unaware. What the woman, when the woman hugged me and said that I had brought her a moment of joy, it was possible to believe that I had been placed on this earth for the sole purpose of providing her one last right. I do not think I've ever done anything in my life that was any more important. Just who is my neighbor? Father, I pray you would speak that into our lives today. Every opportunity, every single day, the small things, the small opportunities we have to be a neighbor to those around us. May we love as you taught us to love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, we love you. God bless you, and I pray that you have a great week.
Be safe getting home today. Stay warm.